uh, to Luke 15 today. So if you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to take it to Luke 15. And I would certainly encourage you to bring your Bible with you. Uh, I know we put the words up here, but if that's, that's just up here. You don't take that with you. You take this with you. So uh, if you can, bring your Bible, open it up, put your eyes on those words. Sometimes what we have isn't everything God wants to speak to you. And you keep reading and you'll see a little more or, or whatever. You can see when I jump around from one thing to another. So uh, if you have a Bible, bring it with you. I think that would be a great thing. Uh, So we're going to be in Luke 15, and we're going to look at the first 10 verses of Luke 15 today. Uh, I noticed that it's been pretty warm over the last couple days. Kind of feels like summer has arrived, right? I don't know. Has anybody had a chance to get down to the beach in the warm weather? It feels like uh, maybe I should start thinking about that, right? Like, okay, uh, kind of warm. Some of you like beach. Take it away from me. I don't want that. But, you know, warm and summer, and you start to think about these things. And I think back to the time, right now when we go to the beach, it's a whole different experience than it was when we had four little kids. You know, we had four little kids. It was mayhem, complete mayhem, you know. And on top of that, a lot of times when the kids were really little, you know, one and two and and five and six, Dana would take all four of them by herself to the beach. Now, I don't know how we still have four kids, honestly, but she would do that just, okay, packing them up and go to the beach. Uh, and, and of course, inevitably, sometimes what happens is what happened one day, uh, she looks up to, you know, from one crisis to the next, and, sh- and suddenly she discovers that she can't get her eyes on Dustin. Do you know the feeling that comes over you when you, you are one, two, three, and you're supposed to be getting to four and you only get to three? And you're looking around and you can't, and there's people everywhere, and you're, I mean, it's kind of like you're ready to run somewhere, but you have nowhere to run because you don't know which direction to go in. And so, you know, that, that feeling of like, I've got to find Dustin. Now, the story ends well. He played the drums this morning, so he's here. So we're good. But that moment of like, what do I do? I've got to find him. And so you, you kind of like, you're, you're taking a step this way and that way. And the, the more you search, the, the, you just realize I can't find him. Eventually, she found him with a lifeguard. And he said something to her like, I just couldn't find you. I just couldn't see you, Mom. I just... I didn't know where you were or whatever. And, and so what happens in that moment when you lose something valuable? Here's what happens. Whenever you lose something or someone valuable, important, what do you do? You go looking, right? You go looking. That's what you do. I mean, obviously, you get emotional experiences and all that. But what you do is you go looking. It's what you do. You, you don't sit there and go, well... I guess that's a lost cause. <laughs> Whether it is or not, I guess, you know, like when you lose something important to you, you go looking for it. And that is the point of Jesus's words today. His words are a response to criticism thrown his way by religious leaders. And his response basically is when you lose something important, you go looking for it. You go find it and you don't stop until you find it. Jesus is in the middle of interacting with people that the religious leaders think he shouldn't talk to. He should actually, they think, be disgusted and and push away from them. But Jesus' answer is, no, you are the ones out of step. You are the ones missing out on what God is at work doing. And I wonder today, as we read this, my heart is, does our church follow Jesus in this? In this zone... Are we challenged regularly to have the heart of our Savior and our Lord in this? And personally, every single one of us, do we have the heart of Jesus in this? To be 
following him like this? I mean, the, the question is kind of like this. What kind of people should be in church? For, yeah, we know. We know the answer. Emotionally. When you see a certain people come into church, are we challenged? What kind of people should be in church? The people who know how to behave, the people that know the songs and they know to sing along, the people who know what to do and what to say, they know how to dress, they know how to talk, the people that we're comfortable with. Challenge ourselves. What kind of people should be in church? Because that's what's going on here. People who think, I know God, I know how to worship God, I know what He says, I know the rules, and I keep them, and you don't. And you should know better. And since you don't, we want nothing to do with you. And the whole context of this story is Jesus saying, is that the heart of God? I think what, we, what I look at here is people should be drawn to the message of the gospel like they were drawn to Jesus. And so if we're not seeing a magnetism from those kinds of people, maybe we need to go before the Lord and find out what we're missing. And so pick up with me at, Rome, excuse me, at Luke 15, verse 1. We're going to start with verses 1 and 2, where we find out that Jesus made sinners welcome. Here's what it says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the scene opens. Jesus is in the midst of teaching. We just got done talking about the cost of being a disciple. Last week we talked about counting the cost. And Jesus saying, if you're going to follow me, understand this is not just a, you know, do whatever you want kind of proposition. This is a, you're going to follow me, understand that it is a cost. And it is a cost that represents value. Are you willing to go all in for him? And so in this scene, we say, Oh, all of these tax collectors and sinners are around. The scene opens with what would be considered the lowliest of the low, a crowding around Jesus, characterized by two uh, categories, two words, tax collectors, publicans, whatever, whatever your version says there, and sinners, tax collectors and sinners. Now, as you might know, tax collectors were despised people in Israel. Much like tax collectors today are not your favorite person. You know, oh, you work for the IRS. Right? And not just because they took your money. In this society, tax collectors were Jews who worked on behalf of the Roman government to collect taxes from their own people. This was seen as working with dirty, heathen Gentiles. You shouldn't be associated with them. And Jews kind of believed that if you bumped into people who were spiritually dirty, you got dirty. Right? So you should have nothing to do with these Romans. You should refuse to work with them. Because by being associated with them, you yourself become dirty. So tax collectors. On top of that, tax collectors had the ability to take some Roman soldiers with them to collect your money. And they used that to their advantage because their salary was whatever they collected over what they had to send to Rome was their money. But they had soldiers with them. So, you know, what do you think happened? You've got trained killers with you and the authority of Roman law behind you and you can just name your price and take whatever you want. Do you think they just took what was fair? No, so literally, they not only betrayed their people by working for 
you know, Rome, the dirty Romans, they also used Roman authority to steal from their own people and enrich themselves. They were hated. Hated. And this was not seen as like an accident of life. Oh, you were born a tax collector. This was seen as a choice. You chose to do this to us. You decided this was going to be your life, and you did this against us. You betrayed us. These are the people gathering around Jesus. And so before we get too hard on the Pharisees, understand you probably would have felt exactly the same way. Why is Jesus talking to them? They're horrible people. They're nasty. I want nothing to do with them. You shouldn't give them the time of day. You certainly shouldn't invite them over to your house for lunch. What's Jesus doing with those people? Jesus, you should know better. The other category is sinners. Now, if the tax collectors merited a name, a, a, a category, a description, the sinners were just dirty people who just did everything wrong. They, you know, they just love to do the wrong thing all the time. They thought it was great fun, and they just chose the wrong direction all the time. They were considered sinners. And so these are the people that are crowding around Jesus. It makes me wonder as I read that, every single time I read that, it makes me wonder what Jesus was talking about that, was, that these sinners and tax collectors couldn't wait to hear. Does that make you wonder? Before I get to like, you know, your stomach turning at the people showing up at your church or the people God brings across your path and he says, you should befriend them. And they're like, them? No way. Before we get to that, do you wonder what Jesus was talking about that all these people wanted to hear it? Because clearly they didn't want to hear from the Pharisees. They didn't want to go to temple. They didn't want to hear the the scripture read because every time that was done, all it did was condemn them, told them that they were lousy people and they were rejects they were on the outside looking in and and that was kind of the point of the whole religious structure to make sure you knew who was in and who was out so it couldn't have been the same as what they had always heard it had to be something dramatically different it had to be a message that had hope dripping from it inclusion an invitation to come and taste of life everlasting not just the same old same olds not platitudes Something that seemed barely imaginable, but somehow seemed like it was an open door for them. Do the spiritually dirty find our church a place that has a draw for them? Do they find us as people that talk in a different way? That there is some miraculous light, power of God that's seeping out from us, inviting even those who are far, far away from God to come. Listen. Consider. But not the Pharisees. Pharisees, verse 2. Then the teachers of the law, that's the scribes, those, those all that were working for the kingdom of God, working in God's business. This man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. They assumed that they were close to God. They assumed that they knew what God wanted done and and the way that God wanted things to work. And they were disgusted at those who hung out with Jesus. Without a doubt, we make the Pharisees, and and often in in the Gospels, the Pharisees become the bad guys. But these were the people who were serious about doing what God wanted done. They took his word seriously, so seriously, that they started making up their own rules to keep the rules that God gave them. Right? And so when they were, talked about being right with God, when they talked about having a right standing with God, they really meant it. 
And so here comes Jesus, who says he's speaking for God, and he's hanging out with these people who don't care about what God said. If you ever dove into, not that I would suggest this, but if you ever dove into what the Pharisees wrote, what these philosophers wrote, what you would find is that they were not big on redemption. They were big on judgment. Actually, what they wrote at this time was that people like tax collectors, they could not wait to stand at the judgment and watch God annihilate them. That's, that was their heart towards them. Now, can you imagine the people who say that they're close to God being so far away from the heart of God? And so Jesus, here he is with these dirty people, and they're saying, you shouldn't want anything to do with them. It offends us to our core that you're talking to them. So I'm guessing what I'm asking for you is, if Jesus found a way to challenge the Pharisees in their idea of who should be included and who shouldn't, you think he might challenge you? You think he might challenge us? Who's out and who's in? Who's invited to come and partake? What exactly is the qualification for being eligible for the grace of God? There actually is one. Some people think it's wise to avoid sinners. And in some ways, it is. In some ways, when you recognize the influence that maybe someone is having over you, you need to make some boundaries and cut some people off. Absolutely. And I'm certainly not looking to offend anyone. I'm looking to put the challenge of Jesus' life in front of you and say, if you're Jesus' representative and I'm Jesus' representative, shouldn't I represent him? And if sinners and rejects and lost souls swarmed to Jesus and we're representing him, shouldn't they have something to come to here too? Shouldn't there be some hope for them? The implication of what the Pharisees say, he welcomes sinners and eats with them, is that Jesus identifies with them. These are my people. And that was like, what? Why would you identify with them? But isn't that the core of the gospel? When you get down to salvation and eternal life, that Jesus identified with us. That he who had no sin took on our sin. He made us his people. He said, I'm going to enter into your story. I'm going to enter into your mess. I'm going to pick up all of your junk and I'm going to carry it. I'm going to own it. It's going to be mine. Isn't that the gospel? Have we lost that somewhere in our life? When we talk about all these people who don't know the way of God. And we, in our hearts, feel justified in saying, you, someday you're going to get it. Someday God's going to zap you and I'm going to love it. And by the way, there's something about this social interaction that still rings true. There's something about hospitality. I think about in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, by the way, was a tax collector. And, and a disciple of Jesus. And Matthew, when he comes to Christ and he finds hope in Christ, he throws a party for his friends at his house. You can read it in the Gospel of Matthew. He throws a party for his friends at his house. And he has food and everything. Come to my house. And so he introduces everybody to Jesus by saying, hey, open your home, hospitality, and we do that as a church. We're like, man, hospitality, a warm welcome, that's a big thing, that's a big deal because there's something about it that sets up the platform for you to understand that you are invited in. 
that you don't have to dress up, you don't have to clean up, you don't have to change to come in. You come in because he's the one who changes you. You don't have to change you. You can't change you. He's the one who changes you. And so you matter. We're glad you're here. Come and listen. This is for you too. Pharisees threw this at him. Oh, you identify with them because they want to discredit him, but they don't understand he's representing God's mission to them. They thought Jesus would be like, oh, you caught me. Oh, I'm with bad people. He would be embarrassed. He would be panicked. Instead, Jesus turns around and he tells them three stories. We're going to look at two of them today. The third one we'll look at in a couple weeks. It's a, it's a much more familiar and longer story. But we're going to look at two of his stories that he tells today. And the first one is found in verses 3 to 7. Here's what it says. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And... When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This parable is Jesus asking a question in response to their criticism of him. And this next one asks the same question, kind of in a different way. This parable about the sheep asks this question. I I, I hope you get it. He says, is the shepherd foolish or wrong to go looking for a sheep he's lost? That's the question he asks them. Is the shepherd dumb? Is this the wrong move? Is this unwise for him when he loses a sheep to go find it? By logical extension, what Jesus is saying is, if it's right to recover a lost sheep, is it also right to recover a lost soul? That's what Jesus is saying. So let's see how he puts this together. He starts off with this idea of, you know, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now, he immediately puts the Pharisees who are criticizing him in a position that they would never take. He says, pretend you're a shepherd. He might as well say, pretend you work in, the, in a sewer plant or something. Like, they, ugh, I want nothing to do with that. A shepherd is somebody who is uneducated, someone who doesn't, because of their job, they can't go to church, they can't go to temple, they can't go worship on, on the Sabbath. They have to stay out. So they never perform all the rituals. They're always out in the field. They don't, they don't have the social life. They certainly don't have big wealth. They are shepherds. And so he says, pretend you're a shepherd. Just pretend that your job is to watch the sheep. Ugh, I don't want that. But what it reminds you of is this. Sometimes the reason that we don't go look for the lost is because we don't have enough humility. We think way too much of ourselves. All the work that God has done in us, we start to like notch it up to us doing the work. We're like, oh man, I'm so much better than them. I would never do that. I think even, you know, in our marriage conference over the weekend, we're talking about all of the assaults that come against your marriage that try to pull your marriage apart and rip your marriage apart. And I think one of the weapons the enemy uses in that battle is pride. It says, I would never do that. I think it's much better to be humble and say, you know what? I'm just like any other person. I could do all kinds of things. I need to humble myself and be on guard. 
right? So if I'm aware of my weakness, then I'm willing to take steps. And if I'm aware of my lostness, then I'm not offended by any lost person that might come to Christ. Looking for the lost requires humility. But isn't the point when, when someone thinks lost to go and find it? The point is not to like berate it for all the ways it's lost. You know, a shepherd who's going to talk about how dumb the sheep are and why in the world did you ever get lost? Why didn't you just stay with the pack? What's that doing? Anything? Is this, the sheep is like, oh, I'll be a better sheep. Like, <laughs> sheep's just like, I don't know. I was just eating, and then I, all of a sudden I looked up and nobody was around. Like, the sheep doesn't know. He doesn't care. So a lot of times we're all about like, beating people down and showing them. And I understand the idea of there's God's way and God's truth and there's right and there's wrong. I understand that. But sometimes we, in, in the effort to make it like more impactful, we take it and we beat people up with it instead of just saying, you get it, you're lost, right? Your life doesn't work without Christ. Your life doesn't work. You've tried and tried and it just keeps blowing up and it just keeps failing, right? Right? Guess what? Mine does the same thing. When I, I know Christ, but whenever I go my own way, whenever I pick up my life and carry it myself, whenever I act like my decisions and my ideas and my understanding is the way to go, guess what happens to my life? So I get it. And I get how we just keep getting lost over and over again. I'm so glad we have a shepherd that comes to find us. And he doesn't go, what's wrong with you? Did you see what the shepherd does in this story? He doesn't berate the sheep. That's what the Pharisees would have done. They would have, well, you blew it on 15 different counts, and let's tell you how you blew it. Most people that I bump into already know they're blowing it. And the ones that don't kind of know it, but they don't want to admit it. Their pride most of the time is a shield because they don't really want to look at their mess. But if I would tell them that there's hope for their mess, maybe they would drop their guard. If I would treat people like they're valuable, even though they're lost, maybe that would enable them to be found. The Pharisees, as Jesus talks to them, even the Pharisees can understand the sense of someone being responsible for a lost sheep, someone being responsible for the flock. And so they would not have argued this point even a little bit. If the shepherd of their flock lost a sheep, They expected that shepherd to go and find the sheep. It was his job to watch the sheep, and so go find that sheep. And so Jesus says to them, do you agree? And they have to go, yes. If the shepherd loses a sheep, he better go find it, or he's going to answer to me. I'm not about to lose a valuable sheep just because my shepherd lost it. So when you lose something, you go find it. Jesus says, listen, when you lose something valuable, don't you go looking for it until you find it. And they have to kind of like, even without verbally or nodding their head or whatever, inside they have to go, yeah, that's what you do. And so Jesus says, when he finds it, He puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and he throws a party. Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. The recovery of the sheep was a cause for celebration, a cause for happiness. A potential financial loss had been averted and the sense of relief from this shepherd spilled over. It was an unsurprising story, a very understandable one. The surprise was the application because then Jesus turns to verse 7 and says this, I tell you, like saying, I'm speaking the truth, pay attention, listen to this, in the same way, exactly the same as that. 
there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who do not need to repent. They thought, the Pharisees thought, the religious leaders thought, lost souls were worthless, bothersome, and they couldn't wait for God to wipe them out. But they would have affirmed that when you find a lost sheep, that's a cause for joy. Jesus says, do you see your hypocrisy between the two? Some of us would find more joy over finding, if we had lost, like, say, $1,000, and finding that than over a lost soul being saved. That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. He's saying, you would have more joy over a sheep being found, even a hypothetical sheep being found, than over a soul that is lost being found. Jesus says, when someone repents, when someone comes to Christ, there is a party in heaven. Can you picture it? Can you picture a celebration in heaven with your name all over it? You know, I mean, that's, it's hard to kind of fathom that heaven is tuned into earth in that way that when someone says yes to Christ, when the lost are found, that there is a celebration in heaven. There is more rejoicing in heaven than over the finding of a lost sheep because it's a lost soul, because it's eternal. And he says, one needing to repent. What does that say to you? One, when Jesus says the lost being found, he's saying that it's when someone understands their need to repent and does it. So what are we talking about with repentance? Here's what we're talking about. It might be sad. It might be painful. Might, that's not repentance. That could be a part of it, but here's what repentance is. This that I've been doing, this way that I've been going, No. I'm done with it. It's the wrong way. I shouldn't be going that way. I shouldn't be doing that thing. I'm instead going to do this thing. This is the right thing. This is the way to go. It's kind of like if you're driving down the road and you realize that you've been heading the wrong direction. Man, I'm not talking to you because this doesn't happen to you. But if, if someone else were driving down the road and they were going the wrong direction and they realized it, that's not repentance yet. And Putting on the brake and stopping heading the wrong direction, that's not repentance yet. Repentance is when I actually turn around and go the direction I need to go that will take me to the destination I want to go to. That's repentance. Okay. So if you're really, really sorry for all the ways that you've messed up, you haven't repented yet. Because repenting is changing course. So I'm glad that you're sorry, and I'm glad that you see the depravity of their need and, and how desperately lost you are. I'm glad for that. But that's supposed to bring you to a point where you turn, where you change, where you decide on a different set of solutions. That's when you are found. And so Jesus says, the shepherd goes looking for the lost sheep. That's why all these people are around me, because they're lost. And when something valuable is lost, you go find it. These lost people matter to me. So this is good news for you. This is good news for every single person that will bump into you this week and through the rest of your life. If you're lost, God is looking for you. You matter to Him. He's seeking you out. I know a lot of people emotionally who are lost who feel like they're just a failure, they're just a reject. The consequences of their lostness keep piling up on them and it feels hopeless and they feel helpless. Jesus is making a point here and if you're that person that feels like you're just lost and you're beyond redemption, Jesus is making a point here that the shepherd has come to find you. 
He didn't come so you should live in your shame or your pain or your lostness. He didn't say darkness is your destiny. He said you are offered redemption. You are offered to be found. You don't have to keep wandering. You don't have to live lost. You can live in the light. Jesus wants you to know he's ready to throw a party with all of heaven over finding you. How about that? Maybe your story is similar to the story of those who are around Jesus when he tells this story. No one thinks you're worth it. You're unsavable. You're someone to be avoided. Believe what Jesus is saying. You can be found today. Now, the other side of it, Jesus makes the comparison. He says, there's more joy over one who repents than over 99 who don't need to repent. Now, is it true that 99 don't need to repent? No. So who's he talking to? He's talking to the people who think they don't need to repent. They don't think they're lost. The worst hopelessness there is, is someone who thinks they're already found without Jesus. Somebody who thinks their life is not desperately in need of a Savior. That's the worst lostness there is. And so Jesus says, if I have 99 people who don't think they need to repent, there's no joy in heaven over those people. The joy in heaven is over the one that comes to the light. And so we might be saying, there are a bunch of people here around me, and all of them are lost, and one out of those hundred repents. And there's joy in heaven over just the one. Or he might be saying, there's these people, this small group of people that know they need to repent, and they're coming to listen, and they're going to repent, and you don't think you need to repent, and you're lost. You're without hope. Jesus is saying to us, and I hope this registers with you, if you're a follower of Christ, I hope this registers with you. There is great joy in the heart of God in finding and saving the lost, in recovering them, in redeeming them. He says all of heaven celebrates. These spiritual people had no time for the lost. They didn't want somebody to come into their church, into their worship, and to displace them from their seat, or to suggest a song that they didn't want to sing, or to you know, be like not know how to act under the circumstance. They didn't want any of that. The doors were closed unless you knew how to respond and act. Hope, we call, we call ourselves hope for that reason. Because there's hope in Jesus. There's hope for the lost. There's hope for those who are devastated. There's hope for every single person. And we want the doors wide open for them to come. Sometimes that means you're going to be in church with people that are hard to be in church with. There's hope for them. Jesus invites them. Do we resonate with the heart of God? Or do we, like the Pharisees, go, no, that's too far, not you. That's my line. You're out. Go away. Jesus tells another story, very much like the first in verses 8 to 10, about a coin that is lost. And so pick up with me at verse 8. It says this, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
very much like the first. And it's Jesus is doing this on top of one another. In the, the following story, there is a lost son. We call it the prodigal son. And so one after another, he builds this like response to their criticism of why do you have all these losers around you? And Jesus says, don't you go looking for what's lost when it's valuable to you? So there's a lost sheep. Wouldn't you go looking for it? Now he says, there's a woman who had 10 coins and she lost one of them. And the emphasis is on one. It starts with one out of 100 sheep. It moves to one out of 10 coins. And then the next story moves to one out of two sons. The emphasis is on the one, the one that is found. Seemingly small, seemingly unimportant, but desperately important to the one who is seeking it. Just that one sinner that repents, even if that one is you. And so Jesus says, this woman has 10 silver coins, probably her life savings. We think about, you know, having, how much do you have for retirement, whatever. These people didn't think about retirement. They thought about survival. So if she had 10 silver coins, she's set this aside for something she's been saving up. This is 10 coins. And those 10 coins, each of those coins probably represented one day's wage. There are some people who believe it represented up to like 10 days wages, but most people believe that this coin represented one day's wage. So whatever you earn in a full day's work, she lost. Now, if you lost what you earn in a day, a full day's work, not like, you know, an hour's worth, but if you worked your whole day and took that paycheck and you had that cash somewhere and you lost it, would you be like, ah, well, if you are, I would like to know you because you're probably doing pretty well, right? Be like, whatever, don't care. Most of us, if we lost a day's pay, we're going to go find it. We're going to go looking for it. And that's what Jesus says she does. She goes diligently looking for it. She is hard at work. She's not going to stop until she finds it. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the floor. She's going around and until she finds that coin. She is not going to stop until she finds that coin. Again, the Pharisees who loved money would not have argued this point a little bit. That when he gets to the prodigal son, they may have argued that point. Yeah, that, that loser needs to go. But in these first two, losing a sheep and losing a coin, they would have been like, yeah, you got to go find the coin. Clearly, you got to go find the coin. It's money. Come on, go find the coin. Go find the coin right now. Like they're all like, oh, money. You got to go find money. And some of us have a greater value on money than we have on souls. As a matter of fact, sometimes this is one of the great deceptions, men, that we get into in our career. And maybe women too, but men, it just seems like it's a bigger stumbling block for us. We're all about providing for our family. But listen, your family doesn't need your money, they need you. So maybe you've done a great job providing, but maybe you've totally missed the point of being dad and being husband in the home. We value money like the Pharisees value money, and we would be like, yeah, you got to go find money, but a lost soul, whatever. Maybe in your home, you're like, i got to go earn the money, and I know we got bills to pay and all that stuff, but listen, would it be a terrible thing if you didn't have the best vacation of anybody you know? Would it be a terrible thing if you didn't have the latest and greatest phone in your hand? But in exchange for that, your kids had you. Your wife had you. Would that be a terrible exchange? Sometimes we just let the gravity and the momentum of money carry us into horrible decisions. And we give messages that we never thought we were going to give. In fact, the reason you're working so hard is because you love your family. But what you're giving them is not what they need. 
It's not what God called you to. It's part of what he called you to, but it's not the sum total of what he called you to. Right? And so it's very simple for us to look at the Pharisees and say, why are you so greedy about money? Why don't you care about lost souls? What about us? Where's our value on money? Where do you spend your time and energy? When you get up to go to work, the next day that you go to work, when you get up and go to work, are you going to work so you can earn money? Are you going to work because God commissioned you for the kingdom of God to go out and interact with people who are lost? And a byproduct of that is that I'm going to get money. But my main mission is I'm an ambassador making the appeal of God to lost people. What's your job? What's your role? How do you see it will influence what you do with it and the values that you have from it. So this woman finds the coin, and what does she do? She calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Have a party with me. Rejoice with me. I want to share the good news with you. I found my lost coin. Everyone in the audience would not be surprised that the one who had lost something of value would go looking for it and would be happy when they found it. But when it came to people who were lost, far from God and ungodly, those people, these, the, the religious leaders would think those people should be abandoned. I mean, a sheep, you look for that. A coin, you look for that. But sinners and tax collectors, you throw them out. You leave them lost. You stay away from them. And so Jesus comes back to the same sentence in the same way there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. I love how he says that, in the presence of the angels of God. So it's not the angels doing the rejoicing, it's in their presence. So who's doing the rejoicing? God. God says, now, angels, step back. I got to do a little celebrating. Right? It's not the angel. I mean, the angels, are getting, I'm sure they're, they're partaking in it. But the point is, God rejoices. The one who finds them rejoices. Jesus rejoices. That's the point. These sinners that are around him are the ones that he's looking for. And their presence represents his search for them. And if just one believes, it's cause for a party in heaven. So we're going to close with a song today that just says, let's remember this. As we go out into our world, into our lives, let's remember this is what we're about. This is the cause that we serve. This is what this is for. How much do you party over the lost being found? When was the last time you were involved in the lost being found? Maybe that's something that needs to show up on your radar. Maybe it needs to show up in your prayer life again. Jesus tells us this is why he came. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so he tells two stories here about finding what is lost and the joy that comes from it, telling us without any ambiguity, the lost are valuable to him. Are they valuable to us? Are they worth pouring out effort and energy so that the invitation to be found is given to every one of them? And maybe today, uh, kind of as we close this idea and this thought, maybe you're someone sitting here and you're actually still lost. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe Jesus has never found you. Today, you're sitting here because he's looking for you. And he's offering you the chance to repent, to turn. To turn to him, to find life, to find forgiveness, to give your life to him. Maybe you're a child of God and you've been lost. You've been wandering. You've been doing things you shouldn't be doing. And this is your chance to turn and be found again. I hope that today you remember that Jesus is in the business of finding the lost. And if in some realm of your life you're lost, come to Jesus today and be found. People, I hope that as a church, and I hope individually, that we have the same heart that Jesus had for the lost. 
And I hope that we know we have something to share with them that is attractive as the words of Jesus to the crowd standing around him that day. That's how the lost get found. Let's share it with them.